This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexander. Welcome, 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 welcome back to Fans on the Run, the most profane Beatles podcast. And I wear that as a badge of honor sometimes. Um, I'm having a great day. I am slightly medicated. I am, you know, all is right in the world. The sun is in the sky. It's not particularly blue out, but, you know, we haven't reached our inevitable supernova death. That That's coming in a couple billion years. So, so we got some time to talk about the Beatles till then. Oh, man. I am very, very excited to talk to our guest today. Our guest today has had a prolific career in TV and film. He was the author slash co-author of such books as Eight Arms to Hold You, The Beatles, All You Need is Love, and Tom Murray's Mad Day Out with the Beatles, and he is directing and producing an upcoming documentary all about this wonderful Beatle fandom called Here, There, and Everywhere. We're kind of kindred spirits in a way, with our, you know, love of everything fan-related. Would you please give a round of applause, even though I can't hear it because I am both wearing headphones and I have no idea where you are, to Simon Weitzman. Welcome to Fans on the Run. Thank you, Ethan. I've, I've very seldom had a build-up like that. It's it's usually uh, preluded by, um, you know, you have a right to remain silent. Anything you say will be taken down and can be used <laughs> in evidence against you, but thank you. Well, well, that's one way. It's There's been a couple episodes where it's nearly gone that way. <laughs> but those are for the private archive. Those are for the bleep button. Yeah. <laughs> it's... Well, you're an author. There's been some authors uh, who I've actually had to bleep out their names because I'm afraid of them. Well, there's a few. There's a few that I'm. I'm I, I, there's no authors in, particularly in the Beatles world, that I'm particularly afraid of. But I have met a few that I've been terrified by over the course of my life in different areas. Um, there are there are a few out there, and there's also a few authors out there that are so distinctly different to the words that they put on paper you know you you meet them and you think well they must be kind of like this or they must be like that and they're they're nothing like the person that you would imagine has written this horror story or this science fiction story or any of it you know yeah so just like how i appear as like an exuberant full of life teenager but really i'm a pill addicted uh mentally ill mess well, I, you know, welcome, welcome to my world. You know, you've, I've got, I've got thirty odd years on you, to be honest, Ethan. And uh, so far, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's medication at my age becomes preservation. Yeah. And uh, so I'm. Okay. I'm this is how my brain works. You said preservation. The first thing that came to mind is the Kinks Village Green Preservation Society. Oh, well, there you are. So I'm, I, I, I go to the New Orleans Preservation Jazz Band, you know, so that's my more of my sort of generation, I guess. Well, two sides. Of, well, it's not my generation either. The album came out in 1968. <laughs> I was born well, in are. 2002. Well, there you are. Well, you know, there's, you don't want to rush anything to go on Steve, and you don't want to you don't want to kind of catch up too soon. No, ca- catching up is for squares. Totally, totally. So, I like to start off. How how has your day been so far? My day has been my day has been sort of weird, but kind of vaguely interesting. I've just got back from seeing a friend of mine, who uh, was the manager for. There's a cartoon called uh, Simon's Cat. 
Okay, I've heard of familiar with it. So he was the manager for the person that was doing another Simon called Simon's Cat. And my mum, because I'm an artist as well, my mum always thought I had the secret career doing this cartoon animation series. I I really do wish I had been, because otherwise I wouldn't be as impoverished as I am now. But uh, it is the kind of stuff I do. It's my kind of humour. But um, so I've been doing that, and then I have been. um, We've been collecting testimonials uh, for the film that we're doing at the moment. So we've just got one in from Neil Harrison. And uh, Neil is the well, he's the owner, the co-owner of the Bootleg Beatles. Oh. And the original uh, John Lennon in the Bootleg Beatles. And so Neil is a friend of mine and um, he's, he's done a testimonial for us. He did that this morning for us. And uh, otherwise we are kind of getting ready as it, uh, I don't know when this goes out, but we are here in the UK, we're getting ready for... Um, you know, the sequel to the first lockdown, um, which starts on Thursday. Lockdown mm-hmm. 2, Electric Boogaloo. Lockdown 2.0 X, you know, and um, which is going to be, I guess, much like the first one, apart from the fact we're all going to go out and work and do stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I, lockdown, I but this time no one pays attention. Well, that unfortunately, that may be the case, and that's been what's been happening so far. But it's, it's interesting because, um, of course, there is going to be a much more captive audience, of course, for wonderful uh, broadcasters like yourself um, over the next sort of month oh, and a half, probably. Okay, you, you talked to Whispering Bob for your thing. Don't uh, call me a broadcaster. I'm not a broadcaster. <laughs> Uh, you are a broadcaster. I was talking to Bob yesterday, actually, and Bob has been doing um, a charity single, which is some saw, that, one. That's a Stand, Stand by, by me. me. Yeah. So I'm I'm actually doing something, hopefully, with Bob at the end of the week to help sort of promote that. And um, that's an astonishing piece of work, you know, whether you're a Beatles fan or just a, a music fan in general, to kind of get 20, 30 people of that ilk to get his black book is amazing to get that kind of group of people together and get them individually recording things. And then his son, Miles to put together that based on what he's received and the video on what he's received is truly extraordinary. I said to Bob yesterday that Miles is very much in the Giles Martin sort of sphere. The the, the potential of that kid is astronomical. Well, I, I can't, is it out yet? Uh, yeah yeah i think it's been out oh it came out on friday okay so it's it's only been out sort of for about three or four days but it's oh. obviously the charity is to kind of raise money for musicians who of course can't gig or can't go out and do anything live at the moment so he's trying to sort of do this kind of global thing mostly uk but global yeah. in 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 theory well, which help everyone out there go go buy that single uh, go buy the Stand By Me Bob yeah. Spring Bob Harris single because it is just stunning. It's a great cause. And if you are a musician or if you know musicians or if you love music, then it's and you do have a few dollars or a few pounds or a few euros free, then it's yeah. definitely something to to link into. As musicians ourselves, you're a musician, right? I'm a terrible musician. I, I have oh. to tell you, I am. I can mix stuff, and I'm yeah. pretty good at putting sequences together. But I am yeah. a fairly awful player. I mean, I was. I I started off as a bass guitarist, um, but the, you know, I basically I'm I'm to quote Woody Allen. I'm, I was so bad at learning it. I spent the first six months blowing into the neck. <laughs> That's how bad I was at playing bass. And um, and I've never really. I mean, I I enjoy tinkering around with it. Yeah 
with musical instruments. I, I can play a bit of piano, but I can't play it when anyone's looking. Yeah. <laughs> well, but uh, technically a musician. So as like, it's well, it's a cause yeah. dear to our hearts. The, yeah. the musicians yeah. around the world. So yes, yeah, it's it's a cause that yeah. you know even you know if you're a lover of music, like ninety nine percent of the human races. Well, then, everyone you know, listening to this podcast. And everyone listening to this podcast, unless they're just completely weird. Yeah. You know? Well, but there's probably some of those, too. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. hi to those guys. Hi. Yeah. How are you doing? You weirdos? Yeah. <laughs> Who just like hearing the sultry sounds of my nasal voice. Or, or two people just talking randomly from across the Atlantic. Yes. Yeah. Welcome, everyone. <laughs> but I think we should probably transition over to... Uh, what what's the name of that band? God. The who? Uh no, no uh uh <laughs> Dave D, Dozy Beaky, Mick and Titch. Oh yeah, the monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm legally obligated to mention Dave D, Dozy Beaky, Mick and Titch in every episode in some form or another. Yes. Whether or not the them. reference goes over with my American yeah. guests, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's it's well, for me. Get with the program. Yeah. Cool. So, I'll jump right back to the beginning. Simon, how did you first discover the Beatles? I was, my parents used to listen when I was growing up to, we had, you know, and I grew up in the days of vinyl records. So my Vinyl records, had, could you explain to the people at home what those are? They're like massive CDs. Yeah. Now, explain to the people at home what the CD is. <laughs> They're like really small vinyls. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you are. Um, and um, so we, my parents used to have a sort of fairly eclectic kind of mix of things. So my, they listened to some classical music. Um, they listened to, we were a Queen household, to be fair. You know, uh -huh. so I grew up with Queen. They were my band in many ways when I was very little. And we listened to ABBA, of course. Oh, ABBA's great. And um, but, you know, we did have, you know, my my parents had Rubber Soul, Sergeant Pepper, Revolver, you know, and so we we did, you know, they would be on every week and I would listen to them. But I think it was probably when I was about 12 and um, I kind of had this uh, what I like to call girlfriend in Austria <laughs> and what she liked to call pen friend in England. <laughs> Um, she, oh, man. Uh, she used to send we used to have this thing back in the day which you guys are now getting back into called mixtapes yeah so we would send each other a kind of collection of um you know songs that we liked from the usually from the radio on a cassette tape you know and um the last song on it was the long unwinding road and that really kind of re-sparked my interest in the Beatles when I was about 12, which would have been in about 1843. Um, <laughs> no, in about 19... So when I was 12, it would have been about 1979. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was too young to be... I was born while the Beatles were kind of finishing their career, but I wasn't born in time to really appreciate their work at the time. And it's well, so a long and winding road. I, well... You kind of brought up like the mixtape, which you said it it still kind of happens these days, but in the form of like playlists, which I I think is really nice because the concept of the mixtape is you know sharing music you like with someone, and I I really like that that concept is still alive and kicking. It is lovely that it's come back, and it's kind of kind of weird and exciting. and it's easier to do than ever. 
Yeah, and it's exciting that cassette tapes have come back as well. Okay, that I'm less excited about. Yeah. It's well, it, it's. I mean, if you have a factory that makes pencils, you know, you're saved. The cassette is back, so you can now wind them back up when they come undone. You know, so that's. I think that's the beauty of the cassette tape is, you know, what came first, the pencil. Yeah. Or the cassette tape. Well, big pen stocks just shot right up when you said that. Oh, well, you see, I've, I've just bought shares, so, yeah. yeah there you go. Well, yeah. see, this is in the business what we like to call insider trading. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, exactly. You know, just make notes, everyone. Yeah. Keep on. You know, stock, stocks with Ethan. Yeah. Probably lead you to a financial crash worse than 2008. Well, it's going to take some doing, to be fair. But um, I, I would say, yeah, so going back to your point, um, Long and Winding Road was the song that kind of ignited my sort of interest as a, as a, as a sort of youngster back into the Beatles thing. And I think it was, it, it was the last song on the tape and it meant something to me. It sort of meant that, you know, the Long and Winding Road that leads to your door, which kind of, to me, meant that she was kind of longing for me to come over and go all the way to her. And I think for her, from her point of view, to be honest, it was more about there wasn't a road that was long and winding enough that was far away enough. Oh, I, I felt that one. <laughs> oh, man. Hang in so, there. So it's ended to be true. <laughs> seldom heard from her again. Uh, so... Uh, apart from those copies in your house of Revolver, Sgt. Pepper, Rubber Soul, yeah. what was the first Beatle record that you remember getting on your own? I remember getting on my own. Actually, to be honest, I went and... Or you we could have walked... stolen it. I could have stolen it. I didn't. I'll be honest with you, the first oh. album... Because it was an album that I bought. It was... It was. I went out and I... my. I think something happened to the needle on the record, so I went out... And I bought um, I bought Rubber Soul, the okay. album again. No, again, yeah. yeah. And and that was kind of the first physical time I'd been out and bought uh, an album uh, on my own with my own money or fair change. And um, I and you know I played that to death as well. And you know like every kid at that time, I got my bass guitar and I sat in. You know you know when you're bad at bass when your parents help you buy a bass guitar and then they buy you an amp but then they buy you headphones yeah <laughs> oh that hit too close to home oh so i that's that's when you know that there are other things in life that you probably should be doing yeah. um, but that that was kind of what got me kind of really interested in kind of instruments again and playing oh. a bit and uh, i'll ask you level. It, since your family also had like rubber soul did the music mean like did it hit you deeper when it was your own copy and not just the family's like it was yours i think it did i mean that's a good, it's a very good point because it just sort of it's a, rather than just being something that you're listening to as a playlist that's mm -hmm. kind of being selected by somebody else that you're making <laughs> granted it was a fairly crap decision because i'm sort of making a decision that's already been made by my parents to buy that album yeah. and i go out and buy it again mainly because it's slipping and scratching and falling all over the place and i i really like that album so but it did yeah it, it took on a new meaning because it, it was something that I, I i suppose if you own your own collection of records you for some reason particularly when you're younger you listen much more intently to them than when they're just being played by somebody else for you would you consider yourself a collector 
I'm not a collector. I'll be honest with you. I am not a collector. I am. I'm not a hoarder. I'm not a collector. I. I, I'm not a huge materialist, to be honest. I, though you wouldn't believe that if you looked around the room here, because it's just littered with stuff. But yeah. I'm not. I'm not really a. I don't. I'm. I was always happiest, to be honest, when I was out filming. Um, you know, on the road, I was. I, I went around the world making TV shows and working on films. So, I was always happiest when I was just kind of a few things in a suitcase or a or a holdall. That's when I feel the most. Uh, decluttered and the least anxious. Well, to me, I I feel like incomplete without you know my record collection and my you know guitars, my like little Beatles figures. It's you know it's all part of you know it. It just makes me feel warm being in this room. Well, I can see it. Obviously, yes. I, the viewers at home can't. They can't. They can only imagine it, they and can, it's it's yeah. quite spectacular. Everyone, there's there's records, there's guitars, there's cameras, there's a uh, there's a blue Sergeant Pepper jacket hanging on the on the door. You know, there, there this, is this, this, guy, this guy's pretty serious about what he does. You know, I can tell you that. Yeah. Well, I like the Beatles. What can I say? <laughs> so, I want to ask you, what do the Beatles mean to you? mean to you specifically specifically to me they are um what they mean to me to be honest is um hope and freedom uh hope because they showed the way for a lot of um regular kids who came from not such privileged backgrounds and Mm -hmm. sort of middle class and and working class backgrounds um that it is possible to make a success of your life um so that that would be the kind of the the hope sort of factor and freedom being the fact that they uh really weren't aware of what the rules were yeah <laughs> maybe weren't there, was, there weren't so many rules but they weren't aware of the rules that there were, were that were there at the time so that's kind of how i treat this podcast yeah. it's like well, I, exactly. there are no rules there are no rules and if there are no rules then the fear of what could go wrong or the fear of what other people think of you disappears or or at least dissipates in some respect and you are more able to carve out something that is a niche that is different or unique and of course the Beatles were particularly good at doing something that was ultra unique because they had this incredible sort of uh gathering of like or sort of like-minded souls in fact they probably weren't that like-minded souls but it was the perfect storm the perfect collection of people that were able to just kind of generate this super catalog or canon of incredible ruleless work you know and, and as they went forward they 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 tore the rule book up and in many ways the weirdest thing about modern music is that it's kind of followed their rules well i i can only speak well i want to touch on kind of one of the things you said um i i can't really speak um to being you know British because I'm Canadian, but you know the Beatles come from you know working class town Liverpool the docks, you know up until then it was just you know, kind of what the president of the United States would call a bit of a shithole. Um, but, you know they made it. Liverpool's now like the uh, capital, or it was like the capital of culture, uh, in the entire world. 
and I I can only imagine like how inspiring it was for other kids in you know other towns like northern town Manchester Birmingham I don't know well I think it, I mean in all fairness to be honest did that make any sense that sort of makes sense the the only thing I'd say is that when when the Beatles were around I mean it it was always a very kind of a very working town you know it's a work, working city rather mm-hmm. and you know every it's there's another dynamic to liverpool which is that it's the people the people are very different i think in this mm-hmm. country to anyone else in this country they have a spirit that the rest oh, of they, this I, country don't have i was fortunate enough to, to go to liverpool uh, a number of years ago uh, along with a trip to like London and you know do the whole like oh, walk across the Abbey Road and Beatles tour. Uh, shout out to my mum for taking me on that trip with a Beatles emphasis. Uh, she's the best. Um, but I noticed just the people in Liverpool. It was like salt of the earth, you know. They just no matter who you are, they were just so friendly. Yeah, and I think, you know, they've, they've had to really earn their place as the city of culture and, and very late in the day, to be honest, as well, because I think it probably was something they deserved many decades before. Yeah. But, however, you know, there's a spirit and a hope, again, in Liverpool that isn't really present um, in the same to the same degree in other cities in this country. But um, when I was growing up, I was quite a good football player, soccer player, um, as, as it will be in America. And so I used to go with my junior part of the soccer team that I was joined, uh, I joined, and we used to go and play um, to an empty, like it is now, uh, to an empty stadium at Anfield, you know. And, um, you know, you used to drive through on minibuses as it was back there uh to the grounds and we we went through some pretty rough patches and parts of liverpool and even driving through the middle of liverpool at the time you know this is kind of um late 70s early 80s early 80s to be honest um you know it was there was still a lot of um development to be had and seen in liverpool it was it was a fairly you know, there wasn't a lot of money around at all, and it, you could see that. The city centre's uh, not like what it is today. No, there's, not at all. There's no uh, Matthew Street, uh, you know, tourist trap. No, I mean, you're, you're looking at a place where, you know, all the culture was being squeezed to death, you know, when I was growing up. You know, it was literally falling apart. People were struggling to kind of um, preserve it, um people didn't really understand i think you know nationally we didn't understand the value of what gone before and it was only really a a sort of like a handful of very brave souls that sort of became this much bigger mass and then sort of forced forced liverpool back on the map really and um so i think you know when you think back to when um you know the beatles were growing up you know they not only were they contending with uh, what was going on socially and politically in the world. But, you know, they didn't come from the world's most extravagant or wealthy city. They came from a relatively um, poor city, yeah. which was which had ambitions. And that was, I think, what was the key. You know, that city, whatever it's had, has always been ambitious. And that's why I think they were so successful. Yeah. Well, I want to ask, um, are there any memories uh, throughout your life in particular that, 
you know, involve the Beatles in some way that stick out to you as, you know, happy moments in your life that are, like, punctuated by the Beatles? Happy moments is a good one. Yes, I think so. Um, and that's fairly recently, to be honest. I, my friend Paul Skellett, who is a brilliant artist and uh, and book designer, um, and an all-round good guy and a very good musician as well, um, he and I started working on different books, and we, we went into some crazy episodes and various things that we did. And then Paul really reignited my interest in the Beatles because he is an absolute fanatic. Like mm-hmm. you, he's got, you know, yards of albums and, you know, this version of the album and that version of the album. And, you know, he's got various guitars and he's got stuff. You know, he's he's just a proper, proper fan. And we started doing these Beatles books in about 2014, so only six years ago now. So at the ripe old age of around about 46, I'm starting to get really in my second, my you know, my second childhood <laughs> of Beatles, you know, at, at a relatively older age. You know, they've always been in my life. My my mum's brother, Richard, is just, has always been nuts about the Beatles and plays their songs beautifully. And, um, you know, but, you know, so it's always been in our heart, but it hasn't been so front and centre. So we were working on a job, um up north which has been um you know some of the people involved in it have been great others haven't been so great mm-hmm. <laughs> and um and i was standing on the stairs of some of a property you know overlooking this incredible view of a lake a lock and thinking you know i've really got to get back into doing something that i love doing which is filmmaking and you know sort of um, the subject i want to do is these incredible fans because you know you you meet these people at the festivals and you know it's it's a difficult trip because you sort of think how are these going to people you've never met them how are they going to accept you what's it going to be like are they going to see through you you know because we're very new to that kind of world well the last uh beetle fest uh in chicago was my very first one and so i, I can really you know relate to what you just said yeah, and it's, you know, you go there and you sort of think, and you are nervous. I mean, if you suffer from anxiety like you and I do, <coughs> you, excuse me, you are anxious about what's going to happen when you get to these places. And um, we we found it really easy. You know, people embraced us, you know, they, I mean, oh. and obviously there was some scepticism, I'm sure, deep down with certain people. But I think the fact that we had been, if you're brave enough to do, and you're brave enough with your conviction and you and you're not doing it just to kind of put your hand up and go i am the big i am then that world audience is just incredibly kind of um it's a family Um, and i just wanted to when i in 2016 i sort of thought i want to do this i want to make this film about these fans and i don't want it to be a history project uh, because it's been done and people there are people far more qualified than me to do it and um, I just want it to be something that the fans really love and not only love, but they can be part of and they can actually help construct. And and it's there. It's a love letter from us as fans mm-hmm. back to the band. But it's also a love letter, I suppose, from me to the fans that took me in. Yeah. Well, it's uh, I'll, I'll touch on this um about just the warmth and generosity of this Beatles community. Um, the last, or the first Beatles Fest, it was about a month or two 
Oh no, it was about a year after my uh, my dad had passed away, and there was like a big long legal battle. It was not fun. I had spent most of the year miserable, and then uh, the shining light uh, in August. Uh, there was the fest for Beatles fans in Chicago, and I didn't know what to expect going there. Like, I thought, are these people going to be, you know, elitist snobs? It's like, oh, you don't know exactly what they recorded on July 17th, 1968, at 4.20 p.m. But, no. These people embraced me with open arms. They made me feel like I was a part of a family, which is something that I had you know, ever since my own, or part of my own family kind of fractured after my dad's death, it, or it died, it kind of felt like it filled that void in a way, and it made me feel just warm, and like I was a part of something, and for that, you know, I'll always be grateful. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, we were talking about this, and we'll talk about it again, I'm sure, but, um, you know, when my dad died seven months ago now, and um, it was, uh, you know, it was sort of out of the blue. And um, I, you know, I, I wrote a little thing on Facebook about my dad and my relationship with my dad. And, um, you know, my, my soccer team's community, they all were brilliant, you know. And, and, of course, you know, we're amongst contemporaries. It's happened to so many of us, you know. Obviously, it will always happen. But, um, you know, the Beatles community was incredible. You know, I, I, there was so much love and so much sympathy and empathy. And um, it, was, it was a big help for me. It was a huge help. So... Uh, kind of mentioned the fest. I I always like talking about these when it term or when it comes to fests. We could even have you done the the Liverpool Beetle Week. Oh yes, I mean, what are those time. like? I I've never been to one myself. Well, they're very different. So I would say you know they're they're all unique. So you know all these festivals are unique. I I you know I I went to the Abbey Road on the River Festival <clears throat> with with Tom Murray in um about four years ago three three years ago something now and we had a great time um and it was a very interesting you know it's a musical festival uh and then obviously since about 2014 we've been going to the festival fans uh in in new york and in chicago and you know i have i have a to be honest there i have a bit of a love affair going on with them you know i i just think i just you know i i it's really funny you know when somebody sets up these kind of festivals there are people that look to them and they say oh you know and they're, they're doing it because they just want the money or they want to do this oh, uh, I, I, you know, having stayed having stayed you know i'm saying generally with yeah. festivals not obviously yeah. with these ones but, you know but having stayed you know i was very lucky i stayed with the lapidos family um and i you know uh, for a few days at a very very difficult time in my life as well and um you know they there is a genuine love and a genuine kind of excitement and passion for what they do. And that just radiates out across this whole community. Uh, You know, so without them kind of being at the forefront of that and showing their love for it, then that sort of tailors down. And I think, sorry, I'm just going to cough for a minute. (coughs) Don't worry. He's not contagious because this is an audio podcast. Yeah. Just just wash your ears at the end of this podcast. Um, is that um, the, you know, so when you come and you go to something like the International Beatles Week, 
Sorry, can you hear that? By the way, there's a there's an alarm going off in the background. Yeah, I, I don't. No, I I don't mind it. It reminds me it's of okay. a Fire Brigade by the Move. It's okay. No, it's probably somebody stealing my car. Yeah, but well, um, say that would be say la vie. It is insured. Um, but uh, anyway, so the International Beatles Week is, I think, it's an extraordinary week. <laughs> Well, it's more than a week now, or it was, but um, it's and that's been going on for quite some time, and it's organised obviously by the Cavern Club. So um, all the people at the Cavern Club, uh, I, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they put it all together. I mean, it's unbelievable. I, I never, I'm always in awe of how they put the fest for fans together in Chicago and New York, how they managed to pull it off. Uh, but when you go to Liverpool and then you see something that's across you know, 20 venues or whatever it would be, you know, and there's massive concerts going on and there's a there's different set lists and then there's days where you can buy stuff and then there's all these little pop-up oh, bands. And I, I've seen videos and pictures of their marketplace. Uh, well, the marketplace at the Fest for Beatles fans uh, uh, rung me dry, so to speak. Um, I I think I'd have a mini stroke if I went to the marketplace at the uh, Beetle Week, because I would just be like, "Oh my God, all this stuff!" Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, credit card on the run. Yeah, is afraid. Yeah, um, but um, yeah, it is. I mean, it. But I think the organisation that goes into it, and I know, you know, John Keats is a really good friend of mine. He's super, really super fellow, and um, you know, the amount of work they put into putting that on and making sure that it runs as smoothly as it does, and the amount of people they manage to get into it, and the way that those people interact, where it's much more. What's really great about the fest is, you know, you get into one building and you're you're kind of yeah. trapped, <laughs> you know, in this wonderful world of Beatles yeah. love. It's in, like an all it's like a an all inclusive resort, you know. It is, it is, it's extraordinary. Yeah. And then when you get to Liverpool, it's this much more sprawling um multi venue, multi kind of pop up, multi um sort of faceted animal. Well, the there. Thing is there, I don't right. think I could do that because I don't like walking very much. Uh, well, I mean, the thing, is, the, the thing is, everything's very close together. So, I mean, I think one of the things that really impressed me is that, you know, if you walk around and you do 10,000 steps in a day, you kind of feel that you've done 10,000 steps. You know, you know, you, you know yeah. you've done it. I would say partially at the Festival Fans you get that, but certainly in Liverpool when you're walking from one sort of thing to another, to another, to another, and they're all quite close to each other and you just kind of look through the, the venue list of what's going to be happening and the and the set lists and, and talk lists and all these things. And you walk from place to place and you do things and then you look at your kind of like your your phone pedometer or your pedometer and you've done like 15, 20,000 steps and you haven't even noticed it. Well, now I want to ask you some, or I want to ask you, what led you to this wonderful world of Beatle books? Well, as I said earlier yeah. on, uh, my friend Paul Skellett is a Mad King fan. And having sort of tried to execute books in areas that we thought were going to be, you know, successful. Apologies with, um, for the deja vu. 
Yeah, no, don't worry. It's happening again. Um, we are, um, you know, so Paul was really instrumental in me getting back into the Beatles. And then we we kind of thought, well, you know, everything's being done and we can't do it again. And then, you know, because we had this little bit of a background in different areas, we kind of started picking at the scab, as it were. <laughs> and uh, and we found that, yeah, of course, there are always different things. You know, what we wanted to do, we were quite specific with the books. We wanted to, we knew there were books on a shelf that everyone would have. <laughs> but we knew in between some of those books, there were those little gaps that we could just slip this little book into that would just bridge those those areas. And that's kind of what we tried to do, really. And we, we started off by going in and doing it as a pledge uh, with, with a company called Pledge Music who went bust quite acrimoniously, and there's a big, long tail to that. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, we, we didn't know anyone particularly, so we just kind of started up with something from absolute scratch oh. and raised enough money to, to make that book and get on an aeroplane and sell it, you know. So that's how much kind of the, the fan base jumped on somebody or on people that were new and kind of embraced us, you know. So that was kind of my introduction to them and to that fan base. And, you know, I'm really pleased because there are people, you know, six years later that I still pick up the phone and ring and talk to. And, you know, there's, and there's still people that come through every so often ask how the film's going or if we're going to do any other books and, you know, all these kind of things. And it's just, it's really nice. And you, and, and as you know yourself, one of the things that's really unusual about this family is that in any other band, you know, getting anywhere near the band or anyone that's around the band or knows the band who's eaten the food that the band have left behind, all that kind of stuff, you know, you, you very rarely get near them and you very rarely kind of feel like you are on an even playing field or on the same level as them. That doesn't happen with this community. I told a story last night about meeting Jeff Emmerich literally a couple of weeks before he died. And, um, you know, I had I sat down for two and a half hours with Jeff, and you know we we did we talked for five minutes about Beatles. We talked about two uh, two hours and thirty or whatever about our lives and about different things in our lives. Now, how many other bands with people of that ilk would you, as a regular person, be able to just sit yeah. down and bar with and just have a chat? It just doesn't happen anywhere else. So I want to ask you, uh, which of the books, uh, which one came first? Uh, Eight Arms to Hold You, which was the diary of make, making of help. That was the first one. That I, I own this one, and it is quite a spectacular book, indeed. We were very lucky. We, um, we were very naive, I think, in certain areas, but uh, we were very lucky because we had a good background in knowing how to get um, pictures and the clearances on pictures and that kind of stuff. But we also had... Uh, we, we made a good decision. We we got in a writer called Simon Wells, who had a background in writing Beatles books, um, to basically hold our hand a little bit in terms of was the that writing. a pun? Yeah, it was, and I, it just almost slipped by. I almost managed to do it. <laughs> no, nothing gets by this. Nothing gets by this fucker. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good. So we uh, we ended up sort of. Um, so that was that was an interesting book and i you know it was one of these things where you do these glorious things like um somebody said oh i know richard lester you know you should phone richard lester and have his sort of thoughts on it and so i ended up on the phone for about 40 minutes with this fairly startled fellow you know, <laughs> uh, talking about totally different things we again another conversation where beatles was literally 
10 minutes of it, you know. And um, But we, we kind of talked about, um, you know, his work on help and all the different elements of it. And that led us to get some really great quotes from him. But also he led us uh, to the BFI, the British Film Institute, which he had donated and, and loaned quite a lot of his materials from that film to. And they opened up the archive and we were able to kind of, um, you know, the things that you'll see in the book, like the costumes and some of the production pictures and the scripts and all these sort of things were courtesy of Richard. You know, he was very generous to us. And then we were also very lucky um, in the terms of, you know, um, setting the scene with somebody like Paul Gambaccini, you know, um, the DJ and broadcaster. And he was, again, you know, we got on the phone with him and poor old Paul ends up on the phone for an hour with us, you know. having to kind of give us an education on various things you know and particularly in america and how it started in america and it was it was very exciting and we kind of just you know it was this kind of glorious sort of mash of different elements that kind of fell in our lap a little bit and um and sort of people liked the fact that we just didn't kind of put words on a page and then a picture in a square you know paul is um let's say eccentric with design and um but what that does is it kind of gives people not only a book but it gives them you know something artistically that they can just flick through and just enjoy the writing is not only great it's one of the most beautiful beetle books i own well, I will tell Paul that he'll be very, very proud and very pleased. And I agree. It's I mean, he's he's just an exceptional. Yeah, he loves the subject, so his heart's in the subject, and that's really important. And so the next one uh, was uh, all uh, the Beatles. All you need is love. That's right. Yes, and that was really. It was really about the. Um, the our world satellite broadcast it was and it, how that came to be because it was um the story of the broadcast is extraordinary and starts from this tiny little acorn of an idea between moscow and london the bbc mm-hmm. and the television stations in moscow and then it expands into this huge thing um you know and um and then of course you know days before this goes on air um the russians who were the co-founders of this thing pull out you know and um you know, and they pull out because they, you know, they, they, John is secretly writing this song and he won't share the lyrics, he won't respond to anything. <laughs> um, they didn't, you know, the Russians didn't know that the band had changed their image and didn't really even recognize them. Paul says about a week before they are due to go on air, he's in an interview where he's talking about taking LSD. And I suppose the Russian authorities just go, wow, you know, we can't take the risk. You know, they may poison our minds, you know, and, um, and, and, you know, you can understand at the time, but, you know, and then you watch, I don't know if you, have you ever seen that satellite production? I haven't seen the, I've seen bits and pieces of the full thing, but of course we, we've all seen the, the Beatles bit. Well, of course. And, and, and the, the weirdest thing about it is that of course, you know, you have this incredible, iconic and sort of legendary moment in four hours of people talking about train train timetables and uh, you know and different countries doing really just very dull stuff you know and then you've got the Beatles well actually you may be a a good person to ask because there's something I've always wondered I've heard but I've never been able to verify Uh, in the room when the Beatles were doing the all you need is love thing there were some you know famous contemporaries there was uh, you know Keith Richards Marianne Faithful Uh, I had read that the small faces were there 
Uh, well, that's a good question. And, and to be honest, Ethan, that's not one I can answer. Uh, I don't know is the answer. Um, I'll have to read the book again. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I can't tell you off the top of my head it's, it is quite possible there were so many people actually at that particular day um, that are probably unrecorded and um, there's, a, there's a guy called Tony Bramwell yes and Tony Bramwell would probably be the right person to ask because of course he was there yeah. and of course he has got a fairly photographic memory of that day so he would be a really interesting person to do because he would be able to give you the whole cast and audience list, I'm sure, in terms of who was actually there. Well, you just implanted an idea in my head. Well, there you are. Well, so yes, I would, I would, I would, I would, I would startle and um, uh, I would startle Tony and see what he says. <laughs> Why? Why are you always saying you're startling people? You're not a very startling well, I, I, person. I think it's. I think it is. I, I mean, what I love. What I really love is a spontaneity, and I like people that take a risk. And yeah. you know, it's. It's. Um, I've and and go with their instinct because I've always been somebody that's kind of gone. I'm a bit of a first draft Johnny. Yeah. Oh, that's. And um, I I do that, tend to kind of go with my feel. Hello, that's me. Yeah, if I feel that it's right, then invariably, even if it's wrong, yeah. generally. But if I feel it's right, then in, and I and I still stand by it, then I'm fine with it. If you are if speaking still, my personal manifesto right now, Simon. Well, that's it. If you start to, if you listen too hard and for too long, um, you start to distort what it is that you've, um, what it is that you've kind of created in the first place. And then, so I, I would say to anyone that's out there that's younger, and that's a great thing about Beatles as well. You know, one of the things that was really great about them is they went with their instinct. You know, they, if they believed in what they were doing was right, they did it. Uh, and they took the, they took a calculated risk and it was, but it wasn't even a calculated risk in their sort of world. It was kind of like, this is what we do. You know, we, we go out there and we will just do what we feel is right. And, uh, lastly with the books, um, your most recent one uh back in 2018 with uh tom murray yes tom is an extraordinary character and you know not only did he have this remarkable day which was almost a kind of an accident in many ways you know it was it wasn't planned you know and um he sort of went out um you know he he was he was somebody who was there to drive the cars and bring a, a couple of rolls of film and get a few snaps if he could you know yeah. uh, so and and it was so he was very lucky it was an incredibly fortuitous day and um uh, but you know from the point of view of his career you know he's one of the great hollywood photographers he's one of the great royal photographers um, you know, his pictures of uh, Lord Snowden and Princess Margaret, one of their pictures with the family is listed in sort of, you know, 50 of the most influential pictures of the 20th century. So oh, wow. he's an incredible, incredible person. But he's great fun as well. And the thing that was really interesting about Tom is that a lot of people had approached him and nobody quite knew how to make an entire book out of 23 pho photographs, mm -hmm. you know. And um, so how did you manage to make a book out of 23 photographs? Uh, we uh well it's yeah it's a good i don't know um we well and it's actually a really easy job it's actually probably the easiest job we've had because we one of the things we're very good at and one of the things is when you make tv shows or you make sort of documentaries or you make these kind of books is 
there are going to be members of the audience who are in totally different positions. So, for instance, my generation and the generation up were kind of, you know, that may have been around at these kind of times. They can think back to these things. But for younger generations, you know, you have to have the social, political, cultural context. <laughs> and one of the things I thought we were quite good at in those books was setting those scenes. So if you were, like yourself, a younger person, you can read these books. And not only is it just going, and the Beatles are great, and here they are being great, and here's another thing of them being great, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it says, well, at the time, you know, we've got the Vietnam War going on, you know, uh, all these things socially, politically are going on. There's, you know, these kind of things going on with law and order and drugs and culture and other types of music and other types of culture going on around the world and other types of, you know, sort of uh, civic and civil disturbances and, you know, racial equality and all these things. And they're all being contested with with this group of people that are kind of rising above it and trying to sort of write for everyone, you know. And um, so I think what we did successfully in Tom's book is set the scene for what was going on at that particular time at the, you know, towards the end of the 60s and what the context of him as a photographer and what, what was going on around the world. So I think that was one of the things that I think we did quite successfully. And then, of course, with the pictures, you know, Paul is one of the best kind of recolorizers and remasters of photographs on the planet, you know, so we were able to really go to town and make the book look beautiful, make his photographs get the most that we could out of his photographs. And also the fact that I went down to a pub, you know, in Bury St. Edmunds where Tom lives, and we sort of sat there for about two or three hours. He'd been approached by all sorts of other people. He'd turned down loads of people to do it. And we just got on really well. We just had a really good laugh got moderately drunk yeah and as well that's how all good business decisions should happen it is, you, know, it's, you have to be absolutely three sheets to the wind to get it right <laughs> and um and so we we kind of agreed that you know it's just that connection of people and that's always been the way if you have a connection with people and they and you have that kind of mutual respect and trust then it kind of comes together and that, and that came together really pretty easily in the end and it was you know and then the other thing was that it was very much led by tom telling his story you know his story about his life so again you had this context of a photographer that goes through this incredible thing as a young very young man you know he's running newspapers and taking photographs at an age about your age onwards you know he's he's running newspapers he's you know he's in africa in a mini being chased by elephants you know and uh it's an extraordinary story. And so it, it kind of gives you that kind of background story as well. And Plus we re-walked re, 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 re it, you know. Yeah. To, do, to do what they had done in, you know, eight or nine hours took us two days. You know, it just showed how the map of London had changed so much. Well, I, I can only assume it's ha- where it has with 50 years of industrial development it has and of course you know with all these kind of is, is the grass on, that had the sign keep off the grass is the grass still there yeah that is still there that's at the church <sighs> okay there you go yeah. in fact very very little has changed in that yeah. in that particular place so Almost did you recreate the thing where you push tom off the building where... yeah we did we pushed him off yeah you know, he bounced as well okay. fortunately good dedicated to tom murray Yes, the little Rest in pieces. Yeah. Um, And so I want to ask you, before we kind of talk about Here, There, and Everywhere, 
what what drew you to the fan aspect in particular? Like, because everyone has a niche. Like, my niche is also the fan stuff, but I'm kind of tackling it in a different way. But what drew you to the fans? I think the same, the very word you used, to be honest, Ethan, it's niche. Yeah. Everyone has a niche. Um, and um, I think that was kind of what drew me in. It was the fact that there were a group of people and they all have these talents. And they can be absolutely 100% dedicated to doing this every single day. You know, they can do it every single day. They can go up and live, breathe and drink and eat the Beatles every single day. Or they can go out and do something that is their work. You know, they could be, could drive a bus, they can be a lawyer, they can, you know, whatever it is, yeah. be a nurse. But this is what, when they come home and they can take, take off that kind of suit whatever it is that they wear during the day, then the Beatles become... They can take off the suit and put on the walrus costume. Exactly that, you know, and that's that's why I think that's why I'm so drawn to this family, because I think also, you know, you can go to a number of different things and festivals and things, and as, as we said earlier on, you can get judged for the way that, you know, you are or the way you look or the way that you speak or your views. Or how old you are. Or how old you are, yeah. And, um, you know, this is something really different. And, you know, I think it's, you have to go to these, I would really encourage once the world is back to some kind of normality for people to really get up and go to these festivals because you are, it is like meeting this extended family that you never knew you had. And once you know them, then, you know, they are, they're a pretty loyal, faithful bunch. And and that's what's really impressive about them. Uh, I concur. And so... I want to ask you, what was the genesis of Here, There, and Everywhere? <laughs> it was exactly that, yeah. to be honest. Well, and I'm not talking about Genesis, like Peter Gabriel with the flower on his head. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. We got we got about six hours through that documentary and realized it was the wrong band. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and no, One angry some... phone call from Phil Collins later. <laughs> One angry phone call from Phil Collins saying, are you sure you're not my son? You look so much like me. Um, <laughs> Um, that has been a comparison, by the way. Yeah. Somebody had some a couple of people at the festivals had or various festivals said, "Are you Phil Collins's son?" And I have to say, no, I'm not. Sadly, um, you know. But uh, you, could you lie. know, uh, sorry, I could lie. I could lie and say, yes, I am. And um, but um, Jeez, I. <laughs> very good artist but not the Beatles yeah um, but probably influenced in many ways by the you know as well you know all these bands had the influence from the Beatles and I'm just trying to remember what the question was now <laughs> oh what what was the genesis of here there and everywhere what was the of the film the film the genesis of the film was going and doing the books for about three or four years or, or over two or three years and thinking I love these people I just think I'd love to know more about them. I'd love to kind of join them up. I, I want to kind of really get into this world and I want to share this world with an audience, you know, with not so much with an audience outside this audience, yeah. but I think with the rest of the audience, you know, because if you think about it, this is a huge global audience and, you know, and it's a strange thing, to be honest, because when you make TV shows or you make series or a one-off documentary or whatever, there is always this question, you know, how do we hit the general audience? How do we hit that audience that is, you know, they like it, but they don't know it, or they're not that bothered, but they may watch, or, you know, in many ways, 
that wasn't really in the equation here. It's, you know, there are 100 million or whatever it is Beatles fan in one shape or form. Probably that's a very conservative estimate. But it's miles bigger than any other TV audience. And um, so if you think about it in that light, um, it is... That was the genesis. That was the kind of things that, you know, you go in and you go to a festival and there's a guy or a girl sitting in a corridor and they're playing the guitar and they're brilliant. <laughs> you know, and you sort of think, I wonder what their story is, you know. And then there is, you know, there's like a friend of mine, Bob, who's the puppeteer. Oh, Bob Abdo. You know, who's just hilarious, you know, and so talented, you know. But different sets, different set of talent skills, you know. Yeah. And, um, and, and then you sort of see, you know, obviously you meet the bands and you meet the people behind it and you meet the other authors and you meet the guys, that the artists and the, the girls that set up and do these kind of uh, really psychedelic things. And, and you just think this is a really beautiful, lovely, this is how the world should be, <laughs> you know? This is really how the world yeah. should be. These kind of weekends and these kind of breaks, they, they reset you. They, they kind of put your battery and everything back to neutral or restart you. And you do feel, it was very distinct feeling when we, when we went to do that first book and we were very nervous about turning up, you know, by, by you know, the second day we were there, we felt like we'd been there forever. And, um, you know, and, uh, and that really set the scene for us to kind of, for me to kind of feel I want to make something about it. So you look around and there are, you know, to be honest, there are, there's a couple of other people. There's a guy, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He made a really great film. He got in a car, lovely, love this film, very brave, got in a car and he just turned up at well-known people's houses and asked them about the Beatles. <laughs> so he turns up at Henry Winkler's oh, house. Oh, I've seen that Huge. one. Yeah, it's a great film. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think so it's just called like Beatles stories, something like that. Yeah. And it was and it was great, you know. And so you look around and you see what else is out there. And, and I just thought one of the things that really hasn't been done is this very gentle kind of loving look at the family and also getting the family to kind of get its 15, you know, that sort of inverted commas, 15 minutes fame. But also from the point of view of trying to make something whereby, you know, normally you'll see a Beatles documentary where, and they're all brilliant and they all know their subject because they're incredibly sort of knowledgeable and, you know, have a great reputation. But you will invariably see quite a lot of the same people on different <laughs> things. And I'm not saying that there aren't the same kind of people in our thing as well, but we wanted well, to yours, make sure that... Uh, none of the other ones will have me. That's it. And this is what makes our film different. Exactly. You know, otherwise, it would be completely the same. Yes. You know? so, um, so from the point of view of... Wanting to kind of the person that writes the book, you know, there's a friend of mine who wrote a book about the Beatles from the point of view of with the background of the Vietnam War. And then there's, you know, a, a guy who wrote a book about, um, you know, the American tours and, you know, and then there's a guy that wrote, you know, there's a guy, I'm not making names, so everyone knows, you know, yeah, um, yeah uh, all of these people. We all know but, who these people are. We all know we all know who they are, and um, but you know these people are doing amazing things, but in totally different areas, and um, and very on a very small scale or on a very large scale, and then there are others who spend their lives touring around doing this. This is their life, you know. You go back to the bootleg Beatles, and you know this is what they do. And the bootleg Beatles in England, the Fab Four in the USA, uh, the tour, the tribute band industry in general. Exactly, you know, which, again, right now is suffering enormously. And um, But we'll come back, I'm sure we'll come back. But from the point of view of 
you know, so their stories, um, people that are connected, you know, we did a really lovely interview with Julia Baird and uh, she was, you know, she's brilliant. She's very relaxed. And then we did a story about this lady who's brilliant, who bought the first cottage, one of the first cottages in Allison Road that uh, John lived at, you know, it's, it's been renovated and done. And her story was amazing because, you know, she had a massive brain injury. You know, she had a huge... Um, aneurysm Mm -hmm. you know and um and has lived with the effects of that but it's still you know her ambition was to get this property redo it and you know sort of do it justice and and it's an extraordinary and it's tiny little story you know it's four or five minutes that we've put together but it's all these stories interconnect and fit together and then there's you know there's the cabin club there's rogue there's the fest in america there's but there's everything in between and all different there's a there's a, a band who are originally from the philippines that were wiped you know half their family was oh. wiped out in one of the hurricanes you know and um it's... oh wait no i'm thinking of a different band yeah. Is it the Rio brothers? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you know, an extraordinary story. And, you know, sort of from the point of view of, so there's so much. And one of the, but one of the things that's kind of obviously been an issue is, you know, you, I started, I thought this was going to take a year and it, we're now in year four. And, you know, and obviously then you have this year comes up and it kind of wipes out the world and um, and everyone has to reset and readjust and get used to it all. So we kind of thought, well, we'll come out the stocks with not just like a film, because I think you can't really do justice with a film, but we'll do the first one. We'll get the first one out. We'll get people's reaction. We'll test and measure by that. And then we'll start to make these kind of regular films about this family. And we'll build up, you know, this uh, what we call the fan anthology films yeah. about the family. You know, and uh, which is made by the fans. You know, there are things that are in our films that are just supplied by fans. So we started off getting, you know, music clips or little interview clips or just little, you know, 30 second or two minutes or three minutes. And then we were getting, there's a lady called Natalie Palumbo who's in New York. She's a graphic artist, amazing character, unbelievably talented. You know, her brother suffers from, uh, you know, has nonverbal autism. Um, and she is a carer for her brother. Mm-hmm. You know, his a lot of their language is through the language of the Beatles songs and the films and all these things. It's an extraordinary story. But she also has a um, she has a, a condition with colours and 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 images. So she sees colours and all sorts of other things. <laughs> and the name of it's slipping for a minute. But you know, she actually turned up. She's turned up and given us like two complete films. You know, two sort of eight nine minute segments and you can you know as andy my you know who's working with me on the edit for this and working on production with me you know is these are things that you can almost like grab and just drop into various different films because why change them they're just brilliant you know and and that's the whole point of this as well this is something that's really evolved through it is that this is you know when you start a film you have your own name on it you know it's this film by simon weisman da, 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 you know normally that's the kind of plan that's kind of really kind of elapsed a little bit on this it's a, it, this is a film that a group of people around the world have made and a series of films that people around the world have made and it's and it's their film well last thing about uh, here there and everywhere i want to give you an opportunity to uh, give any shout outs to the other people working on the project with you that aren't okay. simon weitzman that aren't me that's fine um well i mean without these other people then none of this happens yeah. so Originally, two people are, uh, who have been involved in it, um, Stuart Everett, who's a really great friend, huge Beatles fan, 
big collector, you know, and, um, you know, he kind of really saw the, you know, he'd bought all of our books. He sort of saw the value in what I was doing with this particular project. So he became a really close friend and advocate and kind of helped facilitate a lot of things right near, you know, the, as we got going. Very close friend of mine as well is um, this uh, guy called Keith McCallum. <laughs> and he and I are very close friends. Keith has been, you know, he's a very clever man, very clever um, with numbers and all sorts of things, but he's been battling stage four cancer for five or six years. Um, this is a project, you know, from my point of view, that he, you know, it, it's something that he's very enthusiastic about and loves, you know. Um, uh, so it's the therapy for both of us on that side. That's yeah. a really big thing for us both. And uh, and then more recently in the last few years, um, through a colleague of mine, a really good friend of mine who um, I'd done some BBC work with, introduced me to this guy called Andy Lee, you know, this... Uh, uh, another Beatles lunatic, you know, and um, again, a fellow filmmaker, documentary maker, um, a very passionate Beatles fan, really great, um, really great editor, you know, and, um, you know, very much in the spirit of kind of the way I like to edit. And um, so he's kind of come on board and, you know, we've all kind of thrown a rule, but, you know, we, we had this pledge music thing that kind of fell through in 2018 and we kept the list of everyone that kind of contributed to it, you know. And so we'd said to everyone, look, you know, as a group, we will make sure that when these films come out, that the things that you pledge for, that you lost your, you know, the pledge took their money from them, you know, as they did for Neil Innes and all sorts of other people, um, that we will make sure that you get what you said you would get, you know, when the films come out, you know, and that's really been important to us because they're our friends, you know, a lot of the people that backed us and a lot of the people that have been along for the ride in many ways are our friends. So the people, you know, I'd like to thank everyone if I can, if you've got the next six hours or so, but um, I you know the reality is that film that those those people that i've just mentioned are, are very kind of close to it um but the reality is that we've had so much enthusiasm from everyone that we've kind of been around you know um and you know so the people that need to be thanked are the fans themselves because they're the ones that have kind of taken the the leap of faith with us lunatics as well fellow lunatics and uh, and jumped down the rabbit hole with us in many cases and now, here's where it gets fun. I'm going to ask you some quick-fire questions. 72 miles an hour is the average cruising speed of a cheetah over a quarter of a mile. There you go. Done. <laughs> no, but, okay. The, it's always a bit of a loaded question, but what is your favorite Beatles song? Oh... Wow. Okay. If you want to cop out, you can say top three or top five. No, that's a very good question, and it's going to put me on the spot because I know I'm going to be wrong. Um, There's, there is no being wrong, except for when it comes to favorite. But in my own mind, um, I, I would say, um, I, I, weirdly, and I know it's going to sound quite weird, but "Twist and Shout" is a really important song to me. Really. Yeah. Why is that? I feel happy whenever it starts. There you go. That that's all you, you just, need. Just, it love is all you need. And um for some reason that song, um and it's a really weird thing because um of course one of its renaissance because the all these songs get a renaissance in some sort of sense or another. Yeah. But 
one of the things that was really iconic was obviously in the middle of Ferris Bueller, that song comes the parade. At the parade. And, you know, like the entire audience in the cinema just perked up immediately and and sung along with it. Yeah. That's the power of that kind of, that's the power of something when you've, I mean, I just think from the point of view of getting a, something that is a celebration of happiness, right. That's, you can't do much better than that. On the flip side of that question, <laughs> what is your least favorite Beatles song? I don't have one. Oh, fuck off. Of course. I, don't have one. I was going to go, I was going to go back on a little thing on what I was going to say. Okay. One of my other favorite songs is, is, um, is, is, uh, revolution nine. Um, really? Yeah. I, I just think it's the most staggeringly brilliant piece of, um, composing it's just an incredible work of art it's a work of art it's yeah. kind of like an insular like, so i think one of the things that's really clever about that particular piece is that a it's unbelievably unexpected yeah. <laughs> and secondly it's it's the band going outside music and into art installation so they're actually leaping out the records they're leaping off the vinyl they're leaping off everything and going into a totally different medium you know and um so i think that i think revolution nine is important because um it just again it kind of it it showed that you could actually break every single rule and still work and it also showed that you could actually take an audience that are really evolved into all sorts of other different and invested into other types of the music into something completely new and completely avant-garde and completely different and actually hold their hand through it and and literally take them off the record and i think that that was probably the bravest thing i've seen any band do and it worked i think you're the first person who has said Revolution 9 is one of their favorite Beatles songs on the show. Well, listen, if you look at it, listen to it this way. You have, um, you know, The Long Winding Road. We spoke about that earlier. Yeah. We have Blackbird. We have um, Twist and Shout. We have Revolution 9. These are Helter Skelter. These are all songs by the same band in less than a, de- less than a decade. Yeah. It's it's unbelievable less than eight years less than eight years and you sort of think how this is not possible it's not possible to go from you know um twist and shout or you know much earlier stuff to helter skelter to going from love me do to i want you so so heavy yeah it's it's just it's a crazy crazy roller coaster there's no bad song in there well, I mean, that's that's debatable. <laughs> well, it's subjective. Yeah. It's, yeah. So, here here is where it gets uh, less subjective. What is your favorite <laughs> Beatles album? Oh, um... It's a good question. It's sort of changed a bit over the years. I, I think because Rubber Soul was so close to me, because it was the first thing I bought, I, you know, and and it's kind of been sort of absolutely played to death. <laughs> um, but I, you know, realistically, it's different. It's a really interesting thing, album-wise. I think you'll find yourself, and I don't know where other fans have found this, but that changes. I think as the years go by, um, I'm I'm very very. I love the White Album. 
I'm a big fan of the White Album, but that's been more recent. Okay. You know, uh, I I love. You know, I'm, I was always a big fan of Sgt. Pepper. I think that's a it's a game changer in many ways. But you know, but I think as the years have gone by, it kind of tweaks a little bit backwards and forwards a bit. You know, Rubber Soul was very important to me as a, as an album uh, when I was growing up. But um, yeah, White Album I think is just clever. It's, it's there's something I have this kind of I'm, I'm very artistic in some ways, uh, rather an academic, but. There, one thing that really interests me is algorithms sometimes, you know, particularly music, okay. you know, and st- well, storytelling <laughs> across music. And one of the things that I think is really impressive about the studio albums is that kind of algorithmic kind of level that it goes to where people just say, yeah, but, you know, they recorded stuff and then they decided which one went in the right place. And they just like, it's just like what it sounded like. They just liked it or it was just different. And and no, it was, they, there was a very, very distinct plan of action in getting those songs in those particular order and, and, and with those gaps and breaks in between and the little things that happen. They are taking you on the Magical Mystery Tour. They're taking you through a story and it's for you to kind of, put that story together and i think that's what's so brilliant about the that that kind of sense of it so you've got earlier albums which are much more kind of song one to nine or one to 11 or whatever and then you've got you know then they go into this totally different period where they're actually painting painting stories and painting things but in a particular order um you know and and then that order has taken a lot of thought okay so your favorite album is the white album today Today. What is your least favorite Beatles album? Oh, oh, oh these are very unfair questions, Ethan. Because, I know, um, I'm an unfair person. It is, and I'm going to give you a fairly unfair answer, which is similar to one I gave earlier on, which I don't particularly have a least... I don't really have a least favorite, because I think one of the things that you kind of get with this particular band is... There's revolution and evolution going on all the time with it. So it, it's, again, it's totally subjective. I think that there are merits to every single part of it. But if you listen to them end to end, you get a fairly particular picture if you know the band, you know, the band's history as to where they are, not only just in life, but with each other. <laughs> and um, so I think, I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I, I don't sort of really conform to the the best and the worst of things i I think you kind of have a look at the merits in each one and they're all judgeable i would say kind of person i am i'm awful and you know i'm but i don't you know i you know i'm sure there are people listening guys just sitting on the fence there must be something you know but honestly you know i yeah it's difficult to say i mean i you know i there are good. I mean, there, there are there are stronger and weaker parts on every yeah. single album, like any yeah. album. But if we want, of, we can call it a stalemate. It's a stalemate. Okay. I think we. Yeah, we'll leave it there. We'll park that one. And now, here's my favorite part of the show. What would you like to plug? What would I like to plug? Yeah. Um, I'm very. I'm very upfront. <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay. Um, we are, well, as we've been talking about. Oh, yeah. About, and yeah. The, the Pledge Drive. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we are, we're slightly early on this. We're doing this recording slightly before it comes out, but we are going to be putting together a. The episode will be um, uploaded closer. Tell, or tell me when and yeah. I'll schedule it. Okay. 
I, well, at the moment, it's in a couple of weeks, but I'll let you know close to time because we there is a, a this is slightly off air. There is a real problem at the moment. I've got a real personal problem, which is I now have for the next six or seven weeks a completely captive audience because of the lockdown over here and the possible lockdown around the world. <laughs> There's a very big difference, I think, between this lockdown and the last one. And the last one, people were. Um, you know, there was fur- what we call furlough over here, so people were getting a certain amount of money, and they were able to do things like, you know, paint the house and yeah. you know, do the garden up, and you know, sort of um, basically kind of just retrofit and DIY their way through life. This one's different, and this one's different because the amount, the you know, the well is running dry, and my my slight problem, and I'm just talking to you here, Ethan, yes. is that. We could, you know, there is an argument that we can go out and say in two weeks' time or just under two weeks' time and go, hey, we're here and, you know, we're going to do four or five weeks and give us $5 or $25 or $50 or $100 or, you know, however much you want to give. Um, and it's not so much the ethical thing, but I think there is a real problem because from my point of view, I, well, it's an ethical thing, really, to be honest. I think that... Um, People are struggling now. You know, people are struggling a bit, and um, and we could say, well, we're going to cheer you up. We're going to give you a. We're going to give. We're going to put DVD in your hand or a or a something into your. You know, uh, we're going to give you a pass to a film which will cheer you up, and that's great. That is great. But we don't know right now exactly when that's going to be. That's going to be probably next summer. It will be. I mean, it will be next year, but it will be probably. We wanted to bring it out like now, you know, or we wanted to bring it out in early spring. But the world may not be back to normal by then. So it looks like it will probably be June, July, or something before we can get. So kind of sitting here right now in 2020, saying to people, we know you're sitting indoors, and we know we've got you, you know, as a, your prisoners in your own house, or you know, and but we're also going to allow now ask you to give us this amount of money, and but we're going to give you the reward for it in like seven months' time or something, and. I, I, we can do that, and there is there's a school of thought that we should do that because you know people are miserable, and maybe spending five dollars here or whatever is not a big deal. I, you know, I know that it's been difficult to get work recently, so um, it's for me it kind of feels like we should really kind of be, we should be kind of holding the hands of the troops well, <laughs> at the moment. In I, many ways, like you, I have a suggestion, and, and we, which like, yeah, sure. Well, I, I'd be able to. If, you know, this is something you'd like, if you wanted to go ahead and give, like, a more immediate reward for people, I could, you know, record a special episode of Fans on the Run, and for, like, exclusively for people who uh, donate, and so that could be, that could be, like, an immediate reward. Yeah, I think that would be really nice. And, you know, we've got weird other things like screensavers yeah. and stuff for your phone and all sorts of But I, stuff. I'd but be completely willing really to nice. do that for you. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And I'd really love that. So my, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, I'll turn the question on its head to you. You know, if you were in my shoes, and I you know, respect your opinion, would you wait until the new year to put out a crowdfund or would you kind of go while people are in the immediate kind of area they're in? You know, I my personal feeling is that I would prefer, I may not get the decision, but I would prefer to come out of the box at the beginning of 2021 as a different year and new year yeah. and say, hey, you know, let's go for it. Let, this is going to come out this year and let's go for it. Let's do it. Rather than kind of like maybe kind of doing this thing where we're now building up to, we don't know which president's going to be there. We probably know in the next two or three days, you know, and um, and then we have 
Thanksgiving, we've got Christmas. People are really unsure of the world at the moment. And, and although what we're doing is designed to cheer people up, it may not necessarily be the best time to hit them. But it, I don't know. What do you think? I, I think... I think... You're my hole of one. <laughs> I, I think it wouldn't be a bad idea to do it. Uh, well, it all depends on... Um, Again, because you you said, um, you know, if they donate now, they have to wait, like, you know, all that time. If if you can figure out something to, like, give them in the short little while, like, I, I see no, yeah. no real issues with it. We're doing it now? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Because yeah. it, it's, you know... Crowdfunding, I, I don't know what the situation is uh, that well over in the UK, but, you know, stuff's pretty good in Canada right now. Like, you'd be able mm. to get, you know, the normal donations you'd be able to get from Canada, probably the States, uh, like Australia, all those places. Mm. Yeah, okay. Well, no, that's, that's good. I, you know, it's just... It's it's an interesting one for me because it's just like um, you know what 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 do people think? So yeah, we'll we'll take that on board and see what we can do. I mean, it will be one or two things. We'll either go with it as planned now and do what you say, and I'd very much be you know be lovely to take you up on the offer of doing a, a specialized program on yeah. it. But um, you know, we'll see. I, I, it's it's an interesting thing. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt your program. Oh no, it's okay. Are we? I can yeah. do this. Edit piece, take one. And we're back. And we're back in the room. So, where were we talking about, like, or I'll say, what would you like to plug? Well, thank you, Ethan. uh, As we've been talking a little bit on this, um, you know, there will be the first in a series of films coming out uh, in 2021 called Here, There and Everywhere. Um, A lot of people that are involved with the festivals around the world know about it and have known about it for a long time, almost half as long as the Beatles were existing. And um, we will be um, putting together a... Uh, a crowdfunding um, push on Kickstarter very shortly, um, and that will be to help us finish the edit for the first film, obviously do the clearances that we need for music and imagery, which we've got sorted out, um, and just really put together the best thing and the best film that we can to cheer everyone else, uh, cheer everyone up in 2021. You know, that's, that's the plan, and then just keep going and keep building what is essentially... Uh, an archival project, Ethan. It's, this is really an archive, and so we we feel that we can deliver, you know, really hopefully something that gets people really excited in the first film. Then kind of work into our into our sort of archive in the in the second and third film. But also what it will do is inspire, hopefully inspire other people to keep kind of producing and making their contributions to it. Because ultimately, what we want to do is build this archive at the other end. Yeah. I, I just don't want them encroaching on my territory of fan podcasts. No, but I mean, one of, one of the great things about the project is that it is this tentacled sort of animal. And um, so what we're trying to do with it is, you know, we've done, you know, there are features on the bootlegs, there are features on the autistics, there are features on the Molinese twins, there are features on Cavern Club, on 
Caspar Club, there's features on the Fest, there's features on all the people that are fans, features on yourself, you know. And all of these roads, the idea of these films and these parts is that all of these roads don't, you know, they're not leading to us, they're leading back out. So this is a kind of like, um, I think, micro looking to macro, you know, this is kind of us looking out. So everything that comes in and goes into the film, you know, if somebody kind of looks at your sequence on the film and, and really loves it, then, you know, it's very clear that they can come and find you. And, and of course, you know, one of the things, we're not saying that we're going to kind of be like the Google of Beatles, you know, or anything. We're, we're just saying that we, that's the intention. You know, the, the idea is that we want people to kind of be able to, um, go, oh, you know, I, you know, there will be people out there. I didn't know about Ethan. This kid looks great. Like a you know, choose your own adventure. Show. Yeah, exactly that. I couldn't have put it better. Yeah. Is there, uh, and where can people find uh, more info on the uh, Eight Arms, or on the uh, Here, There, and Everywhere, and where can they find your books? Okay, so um, first on the books... Um, some of our books, um, Eight Arms and Tom Murray, are printed by ACC Books, um, ACC Art Books. Um, there's, you have to kind of probably look quite uh, around things like Abe's Books and other places to find our books now because the original limited editions we did have all sold out. The other book is All You Need Is Love, that's street edition, and that is uh, basically available through the Flood Gallery Publishing Company, um, who are also a London-based company. Um, and they did the street edition of the All You Need Is Love book. Um, you can still, I think, probably find various versions of the first editions, most of which are signed uh, probably around eBay and a few other places. A few collectors have said Abe's books. I think I've got one or two. Damn you scalpers! <laughs> yes, exactly. And then uh, film-wise, um, uh, what was the question? Sorry, what was the question? Uh, where the where can bit? we find more info- information? What, what, okay. So on the, on the film, uh, obviously there is um, a uh, Facebook uh, site, which is um, Here, There and Everywhere, uh, film. So if you go, I think it's HTA film, or you just look at here, there, and everywhere film or documentary or finders. Um, and also there is here, there, and everywhere movie.com. Uh, and that's a website which we're actually in the process of updating right now. Um, and you'll be able to find the information about the background of the film and the various trailers, and then the connection into the Kickstarter program for the crowdfunding. Well, well said. <laughs> And now it's time for my little spiel. I'm I'm still perfecting the art of plugging myself, but uh, here we go. So hopefully, hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. If you're watching on YouTube, if you haven't already, please hit that red subscribe button. Uh, please like the video. Uh, hit that bell notification so you get notified every time a new uh, Fans on the Run episode gets uploaded, which at this point in time is twice a week as because uh, it's the run up to Christmas because I am a generous little fucker um, but yeah leave us a comment tell us what you think um, you can also find this episode streaming just about everywhere good podcasts can be heard some bad ones so you know the usual suspects uh, Spotify Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts iHeartRadio Stitcher Podbay basically you know 
you know where it is. And uh, please, please give us a rating wherever you're listening. I, I really appreciate uh, any feedback you have on the show. And if you have any suggestions for the show or feedback, uh, please reach me at fansontherunpodcast at gmail.com. And I will uh, try as hard as I can to respond to it. Whew, that went well. I think I actually did the spiel. You did it. It was that's great. I was I was mesmerized yeah. there. You've done it perfectly. Um, so, anyways, yeah. Simon, nice. it's it's been an absolute blast talking to you today. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you for giving me so much time and for also dealing with my sort of famously creeping uh, lack of memory. Now, <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, buddy. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah. So, I mean, no, great. I mean, you know, there's, there's a number of people that I think would love to talk to you. I would really like you to interview Tom oh, Murray. Well, we'll talk off air. He would, he, he would, he would he, we will talk off air, but there's, there's, I'll, I'll give you a plug as well, which you can edit in, you know. I, I've been asked by a lot of people to do a lot of things in terms of what we're doing with the film and, and the books over the years. But, you know, it's um, if you really want to get your point across and actually have a really good blast doing it and you have something to say about the Beatles, do get in touch with Ethan because his podcast is really fresh and really different. And I think that he's going to be the next big thing on the podcast scene. So please do get in touch with Ethan and um, share your stories with him. Ah. My heart is melting. Ah, <laughs> uh, but you know, thank you so much for joining us. To everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Go, go away, <laughs> go. Fans on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillip. This has been a Showtown production.